as the apple of his eye. And it's interesting too how I came to be preaching on this subject today, as I was halfway through preparing for the next in the Thessalonians series. If you remember, Kevin last week talked about how the king, when he couldn't sleep in Esther 6, just happened to come across something that he'd previously recorded. And having read it, was reminded of what he said after Mordecai had given him the heads up in a plot to assassinate him and decided it was overdue time to honour Mordecai. In a similar way, um, Dennis, the other elder from my time at Biddulph, was sorting through some old CDs and came across a sermon and its fulfilment in prophecy. And it's assumed that I preached and in light of current events, I thought we'd revisit it. And it's quite appropriate today, isn't it, as today's Remembrance Day. So first we need to look briefly at the Abrahamic covenant. Oh, it's already up. An unconditional covenant which God promised to, in which God promised to bless Abraham and his offspring at the start of Genesis chapter 12. And as we read it, pay particular attention to verse 3. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. <clears throat> Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. It was an unconditional covenant because God promised on his own account, without any reference to obedience on Abraham's part um, or that of his descendants, that he would indeed bring about what he'd promised to Abraham. And it has three aspects or expansions given elsewhere in the Bible. And we won't go through them for the, for the sake of time, but there's the land covenant given in Deuteronomy 29 to 30. There's the seed covenant made with David in 2 Samuel 7. And the blessing or new covenant given in Jeremiah 31, 31. A covenant made with Israel and for Israel and not the church, as we've seen before. Although the church is blessed with some aspects of the new covenant in advance of its fulfilment with Israel at some point in the future, and some might say near future. But more on that before we finish. But there was another covenant, wasn't there, given to Moses on Mount Sinai, a, a covenant that promised blessing for obedience and punishment for disobedience. One which they as a nation agreed to, all together with one voice, both before they went into the land and then with the next generation that did enter the promised land. And you can read about that in the book of Joshua, and for the sake of time we won't go there. But the whole congregation stood between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal in what we now know as the West Bank, and swore to obey and be faithful to the Lord. But despite their subsequent disobedience, then through the terms of the Abrahamic covenant, God would still accomplish his purpose, still redeem nation, Israel as a nation in the future through the return of their Messiah and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And it's through the nation Israel that God promised in Genesis 12 to bless the nations of the world. And that blessing will find some of its fulfilment in our Lord's glorious kingdom reign on the earth. 
And we have his promise too that we'll be with him, or at least those who've trusted him as their saviour will. Now, if there's anything that demonstrates the literal nature of God's covenants with Israel as a nation, and how the Lord keeps his word, it's what we're going to go through this afternoon. It demonstrates God's faithfulness to his word, and it connects this ancient collection of books that we know as the Bible, the word of God, right down to the present day. We've seen God's covenant with Abraham for the promised land. However, God also revealed that Abraham's descendants would be in affliction and bondage for 430 years. In Genesis 15 and verse 13 we read, And God said unto Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And we know that Abraham himself, although he was obedient to the Lord in going to the land that the Lord gave him, nevertheless failed many of the tests of his faith, one of which was going himself to Egypt instead of trusting in the Lord's provision. And his great-grandchildren, the twelve sons of Jacob, were even worse, and had to leave the land after much disobedience of the Lord's original instruction to them, intermarrying with the Canaanites and incurring the wrath of the inhabitants of the land in their overreaction to say the least when their sister was raped and the subject the subject of which is contained in the rest of the book of Genesis it deserves a mention at this point that just as Adam the federal head of all humanity had to leave the garden of Eden because of his disobedience so Abraham's descendants had to leave the land that the Lord promised them for the same reason and for consequences that they brought upon themselves as a result of their disobedience. But the Lord had promised that he would preserve them as a nation, and he did. And so this affliction previously mentioned began about 30 years after God made the covenant with Abraham, with the hatred expressed towards Isaac by Ishmael's mocking attitude. And 30 is a significant time period in the Bible, which we might bear in mind for now. For instance, our Lord's ministry started when he was 30 years old. It was seen as an age where maturity was reached. <coughs> Genesis 21, verses 8 to 10. If you can turn there, please. Genesis 21, 8 to 10. <clears throat> and Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing, Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And that affliction of Abraham's seed in Canaan eventually ended in the bondage in Egypt. Exodus 12, 40-41 says, Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the self-same day it came to pass, please note self-same day, that all the hosts of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. And the Apostle Paul confirmed that from the making of the covenant with Abraham to the end of the Egyptian captivity was 430 years in Galatians 3.17. And I say this, he said, that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God. 
Years later, Israel's second captivity came about when the kings of Israel successively rebelled against God as their people turned to idol worship and pagan gods, despite God's warnings that through his prophets. And the Lord ejected them again from the land, just as he'd warned them through the law and the prophets, starting with the ten northern tribes of Israel who were conquered by the Assyrians in 721 BC. Then Jeremiah prophesied that the kingdom of Judah would also be removed from, for 70 years from their land beginning in 606 BC because of their idolatry. Jeremiah 25:11 reads, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. After the exile, Zerubbabel led the first group of exiles back to Israel in 538 BC, and work started on the restoration of the temple in 536 BC, 70 years later, on the first day of Nisan in 536 BC, just as Jeremiah had said. Yet despite the royal permission, only a small remnant of the Jews left Babylon and returned to Israel. The vast majority never returned, choosing rather to live in the land of their captivity. You've no doubt heard of the lost ten tribes of Israel while well, they stayed behind in Babylon. They preferred to live in the comfort that they now had amongst the Gentiles. The Lord had meanwhile punished the Assyrians for the unnecessary cruelty with which they treated the children of Israel as they took them into captivity and for their pride in failing to recognise that the victory, their victory that they had was from the Lord, punishing them at the hands of the Medes and Persians. And we can read that account in Daniel. During that time, after their return from Babylon, Israel never had, was never a sovereign nation as they had been before, never in charge of their own affairs. They were a vassal state of first the Medes and Persians and the Greeks and the Romans until their exile again in 70 AD, this time to the nations of the world. Now we'll move forward to the third and this time worldwide return from captivity. The Bible contains numerous prophecies of the final return of the exiles to the promised land in the last days. In light of the precision of the prophecies about the duration of the earlier captivity in Egypt and the second exile to Babylon, is it possible that the prophets have revealed when the Jews would return from their final scattering to establish their own nation and start to rule themselves again? While the prophet Ezekiel was given a vision concerning the final return of his people. So turn to Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 3. Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie in it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of days, 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you've completed them, lie again on your right side, then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I've laid on you, you a day for each year. Ezekiel declared that each day that he lay on his side in public view represented 
one year. And that Israel would be punished in exile again for 430 years. 390 years for Israel's disobedience, plus 40 for Judah's. Exactly the same length of time as their first captivity in Egypt. At the end of the 70 years of prophesied captivity in Babylon, in 536 BC, only a small remnant, as we've already said, of the house of Judah returned to Jerusalem to fulfill Jeremiah's prophecy. And as we've already said, the vast majority of the Jews, probably about 90%, remained behind in the Persian Empire. Well, when we deduct 70 years in Babylon, that ended in 536 BC from Ezekiel's 430 years of punishment, Israel still had 360 years of further captivity due to them for their iniquity, according to Ezekiel, following the end of the Babylonian captivity of Jeremiah. God was gracious. He gave them their chance to return along with the remnant who did. He'd already declared in Ezekiel 18 that the children of the exiles wouldn't have to pay for the sins of their fathers if they returned in obedience to him. And so it was. God is gracious as well as just. And that generation, the generation after the Lord had expelled the previous generation from the land, weren't punished for the sins of their fathers and were given an opportunity to return to their own land. And perhaps 10% did. God always keeps a remnant who are faithful to some degree. A principle that is established to preserve his people. And for that remnant, he suspended the rest of the sentence. And for them, the issue would then become, would they be obedient to the Lord during the suspension of that sentence? Yet despite the precision of Ezekiel's prophecy, there was no general return to the land by any of those still in exile, either 430 or 360 years later. So why not? Was Ezekiel wrong? Was it just a general figure that was totally ambiguous and allegorical even? Something that we shouldn't concern ourselves with, as our amillennial friends might say. Something we can't understand. Well, the solution's found in Leviticus 26, where the Lord established promises and punishments for Israel based on her obedience or her disobedience. God told Israel four times in this passage that if after being punished for her sins they still wouldn't repent, then the punishments previously specified would be multiplied by seven. In 70, verse 17 in Leviticus 26, and you can turn there if you would. <clears throat> I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And repeated in Leviticus, uh, in, in verse 21, 23 to 24, and 27 to 28, which you won't read for the sake of time. When the Lord repeats something in Scripture, then we'd better sit up and notice, and so should they have. In other words, if the Israelites didn't repent after God had punished them, then the punishment previously spoken of 
And we'll see that it's the remaining balance of their 430-year sentence. 360 years will be multiplied seven times. 360 years times seven is a total of 2,520 years. If you don't obey me, I'll punish you seven times more for your sins. He would require of the nation seven times the original punishment of being out of the land and still not able to rule themselves. Therefore, as of 536 BC, when some of the exiles returned to, the, to Israel, then if this calculation is correct, final restoration of Israel to the land would only occur after 2,520 biblical years. Now that's a long time, isn't it? Can the God who inspired Moses, Moses to write Leviticus have had in mind their future disobedience, including the rejection of their saviour by those who did go back to the land and be so, pre be so precise in his judgment for national sins that haven't even happened yet by a nation that wasn't even in their own land for the first time? While the majority who stayed behind in Babylon obviously weren't obedient, they didn't go back choosing to live instead in the land of their former enemies. And even those who did return were disobedient because God had to send further prophets to re reprimand them and encourage them to finish what they started. And then 400 years of silence. God had stopped speaking to them, stopped warning them, until John the Baptist came on the scene, followed by the one long promised. And as we know, they rejected him too, didn't they, as a nation? Now, we've seen before that when we refer to biblical and prophetic years, we're talking about the ancient Jewish year of 360 days. Our modern calendar's got 365 and a quarter, but the biblical year of ancient Israel was lunar-based, contained only 360 days. Abraham used a year of 360 days consisting of 12 months or 30 days each, and instead of the leap years that we use in our calendar, they'd have a leap month at the end of each year to get the seasons back into sync again. So the Babylonian captivity ended in the spring of 536 BC. They'd served 70 years of the sentence that God imposed in Babylon, but only a remnant went back to the land. The rest of the sentence, sentence of 360 years, at least for the remnant who obeyed and went back, was graciously suspended. This is the date of the starting point for the calculation. The period of their own subjugation and worldwide captivity for their disobedience to God, ultimately rejecting their own Messiah, now would last, if this calculation is correct, 2,520 biblical years multiplied by 360 days, or 907,200 days. Converting this figure to our modern calendar, we divide it by 365 and a quarter to reach the four, total of 2483.8 of our calendar years. And we also need to remember there's only one year between 1 BC and 1 AD, because there's no year zero. So the end of Israel's worldwide captivity, if we can take this prophecy literally, would occur after a total of 284. 2,483.8 of our years had elapsed from, from the end of the Babylonian captivity in the spring of 536 BC. 
the remainder of the suspended sentence, part of the Lord's judgment, multiplied by seven. In our calendar, that equates to late spring 1948. So which nation came into existence as a sovereign nation, this time in charge of their own affairs in May 1948? On the 15th of May 1948, the Jewish people proclaimed their independence and the end of their worldwide captivity at the precise time prophesied by the prophet Ezekiel in conjunction with the prophetic key found in Leviticus 26. And what was also significant about that day, it was the day of Pentecost. And there's another day that seems to be significant as well. You remember I mentioned that 30 years was a significant age earlier on. Well, 30 years earlier, the Allied forces in World War I had removed control of the entire region of Arabia, including Palestine, from Turkey as the head of the Ottoman Empire. And the legal framework was set in place to give back to Israel when Turkey relinquished control of the whole area. At various conferences culminating in the San Remo Conference in April 1920, when the Jews were given the legal right over the whole of the former biblical kingdom, that included the eastern side of the river, of the River Jordan, to establish their own nation. Not the bits that they've got now, the whole of the nation. Now do you think Satan was going to stand by and watch that happen? The same Satan who inspired Haman all those years earlier who tried to exterminate the Jews because as far as he's concerned just as we're hearing in our afternoons with Kevin if he can wipe out the Jews then God can't fulfill his promise to Israel and we all know what happened to Haman and his followers during the second period of dispersion he has continued with his efforts through the many pogroms and persecutions culminating with the efforts of this gentleman on the right when he tried to establish his worldwide Aryan Empire and extinguish the Jews. And the Lord dealt with him, didn't he, and his nation in the Second World War. And you might be asking, who's the guy on the left? Well, it's the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem who also shared some of the same aims as Hitler. Hence the meeting between the two in this photograph. And where one left off, the follow many of the followers of the religion of this other man are, as we know, continuing today in their efforts to drive Israel out of the land that the Lord has given them. But as we know, as the Lord said through Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, 24 to 26, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from among the countries, not just Babylon, and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your, from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Now, as in many other prophetic passages, the whole doesn't have to be fulfilled all at the same time. For instance, we'll soon be reading, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. The first part was fulfilled 2,000 years ago, while the rest has yet to be fulfilled. In the same way, in Micah 5.2 we read, and you can turn there if you wish, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Obviously talking about their Messiah, our Saviour. And the rest is yet to happen because of Israel's rejection of him. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she is, who is in labour, bears a son. Does that ring any bells in Revelation 12? And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live security, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So from fulfilled prophecy, we can see that God is working his purposes out for Israel. And he's got a timetable that he's rigidly sticking to. In Ezekiel as a whole, we've got presented in more or less chronological order God's dealings with the nation of Israel, which on a plain and normal reading of the text, taking into account the figurative language of the prophets, some of which has been fulfilled and some of which is still yet future, if we apply the same interpretive rules to the book of Revelation written by the Apostle John about 20 years after the destruction of the temple and, and, and Jerusalem in 70 AD, there's no way that its prophecies have been fulfilled historically. The re-establishment of Israel as an independent nation, something that they've never been before since the exile of Ezekiel's time, not only thrown a whole bucket of spanner into amillennial thinking, but it's also confused many premillennialists. And the issue that's bothered them is that not only has the return to their land been an unbelief, in fact, the majority are not only atheists and agnostics, much like the rest of the world, but even Orthodox Jews who take their God seriously are in the minority. Israel, as it is today, doesn't seem to fit the many prophecies that return, that predict a return in faith, in preparation for blessing. But we've shown that in, April, in 1948, that fits exactly with the time period prophesied by Ezekiel, combined with the seven times judgment of Leviticus 26. No matter what kind of interpretation people try and put on it, it's a simple observation of dates that are set in history and mathematics. First rule of Bible interpretation, if the plain, literal meaning of scripture can make sense, then don't try and take any other sense. You see, the Bible speaks of two returns from among the nations, not including the more local return from Babylon two and a half thousand years ago. First return is an unbelief in preparation for judgment. And the second return is in faith at the end of the preparation for blessing. The return prophesied at Ezekiel 20, 33 to 38, and you can turn there, just give me a little bit of a break. It's clearly an unbelief. Ezekiel's drawing a simile between the return from Egypt, where God's plan was first given to them, the, uh, first gave them the law, 
and they were to build the tabernacle and they were to then go into the land and because of unbelief that generation was destined to die in the desert and it was the next one that went into the land as I live says the Lord God surely with a mighty hand with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out I will rule over you I will bring you out of the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you were scattered with a mighty hand with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will plead my case with you face to face just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt so I will plead my case with you says the Lord God I'll make you pass under the rod and I'll bring you into the bond of covenant I'll purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me I will bring them out of the country where they dwell but they shall not enter the land of Israel then you will know that I am the Lord that this return is an unbelief and ready for judgment is seen by the fact that they gathered with a mighty hand with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out repeated twice for emphasis and we know from history that the Lord's fury was poured out not just upon his own people but also on other nations in the anti-Semitic world leading up to their establishment as a nation and since and in those who tried to return after the Second World War many of them didn't enter the land and our British government kept them back as they tried to go in internment camps in Cyprus there were a total of 12 camps which operated from August 1946 to January 1949 and in total held 53,500 Jews Ezekiel 22 17 to 22 makes a similar point only this time into the land The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. They are all bronze, tin, iron and lead in the midst of a furnace. They have all become dross from silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. Now, don't forget that Ezekiel's preaching after the exile from Jerusalem. As men gather silver, bronze, iron, lead, and tin from the midst of the furnace and blow fire on it to melt it, so I will gather you in my anger and in my fury, and I'll leave you there and melt you. So this passage speaks of a, a gathering into Jerusalem again for judgment. We turn to Ezekiel 20, 36, verse 22. It again deals um, with a gathering in unbelief where they profane God's name among the nations. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore says the house, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned amongst the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. But I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. 
And the next verse speaks of their regeneration or spiritual rebirth. And it doesn't have to be fulfilled all at the same time. Just like the for unto us a child is born passage. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Isaiah speaks at the same time in chapter 11, verses 11 to 12. Only he points out that this is the second return from among all the nations yet to be fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 to 12. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Well, they're in the land in the flesh, aren't they? The dry bones of Ezekiel 37 and from, from verse 7, that speaks of Israel of a nation, have come together. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise and a sudden, suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. They're still spiritually dead in their sins, just like all other unbelievers. And this is where the nation is as a whole, even as we speak. And it's going to take the events of the Great Tribulation to bring them to spiritual life and their recognition of the one whom their fathers crucified 2,000 years ago. Also he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. And when their Saviour in hours comes back to rescue those who are left, those who are still alive after the climax of that great conflagration, combined with the great work of the Spirit amongst them, then will be the fulfilment of that second return of his chosen nation to all that the Lord has promised them. So to recap, the first return from Babylon in 536 BC was not from amongst the nations, only from Babylon. The first regathering from among the nations is an unbelief in preparation for judgment and is still taking place now. And anti-Semitic pressures among the nations happening as we speak is driving that process further. The next regathering, this time in faith, will be for blessing after the tribulation and the start of the millennial kingdom. And having mentioned the tribulation, there's both internal and now external evidence that the Lord will deal with the nations of the world during the tribulation, depending on their treatment of his nation, the apple of his eye. In the words of the Apostle Paul, again from Romans 11, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, 
that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. In answer to a question I was asked back when I first preached this message, there's much evidence that the early church was premillennial in its theology, and that it strayed away from this viewpoint from the third century when the, when the church became the established religion of the Roman Empire. After all, the emperor wouldn't be too pleased, would he, if with this concept of the Christ returning and taking away his authority. I can do no better and for the sake of time than point you to an article by Dr. Tommy Ice, who some of you might have heard of, and the web address will be on the screen at the end of this message. Even the Muslims have a premillennial understanding of scripture. And you might say, how do you know that? Well, it's by the things that they've done. The Bible clearly predicts that when Jesus comes back to earth, not the first time for his church, he's only come as far as the clouds then, but when he comes back to establish his kingdom, he's coming via the Mount of Olives, which is on the east side of Jerusalem. Then from there, tradition has it through the east or golden gate of Jerusalem. Another event, by the way, that where we can say the Lord's returning once, but it's in two parts or stages. Well, the Muslims, in their wisdom, have dug graves in front of the Eastern Gate. And as you can see, there in front of the archway, they argue that the one who is holy wouldn't trample over those graves. And you'll notice they've bricked up the Eastern Gate. But he isn't coming back as a lamb next time, is he? Yeah. But as the King of Glory. The whole mountain which was behind me when I, as I stood with Carol to take this photograph, just outside the Garden of Gethsemane, will be split in two when his foot touches it. Zechariah 14.4 reads, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall be moved towards the north, half of it towards the south. The Geological Institute in Tel Aviv has discovered a major fault line running right through the Mount of Olives. It takes a line from the Mount of Olives over the Kidron Valley all the way into the Valley of Hinnom and then follows the Kidron Brook which empties into the Dead Sea. It's funny how that got there, isn't it? Yeah. As to the timing of the final regathering of Israel, this time in faith, only the Lord knows when that's going to be. I'm not going to fall into the trap of making any predictions as many before have tried to. But it's fair to say we can make observations based upon what God has done in the past. And given what's happening today when God's law has been trampled on and ignored all over the Western supposedly Christian world. The only thing I'll say is that the Lord has set a precedent and he's done it twice. The first time was the generation that left Egypt but didn't enter the promised land through unbelief. Those who were 20 years and older, or 20 years or over, died in the desert. Numbers 14, 28 to 30. And the next generation went into the land. The second time was the generation over 20 years old that was exiled to the land of Babylon. They all died in exile. However, some of the next generation amongst the exiles went back. So that's two precedents set. Coming up 
uh, to, to today's Israel, those of the nearly um, all of that unbelieving generation who were 20 and over, who entered the land in 1948, still in unbelief, they've all gone. Ariel Sharon, their once president, is typical of those brave soldiers who fought in Israel. He was just 20 years old when Israel became a nation in 1948. And he died of a stroke in, two, in 2014. After giving in to the demands of the West, and particularly the United States, to evict his own people from Gaza and give it to the so-called Palestinians. And what's happening today flows out of that decision. Our God is one who judges the nations, and he does so very specifically, based upon how they relate to his chosen people, Israel. And you might say, how do you know that? Well, back at the time when Israel, under Western pressure, gave Gaza to the Palestinians, I was reading a book called Eye to Eye. I don't know if any of you have heard of it, by Bill Koenig. And it details specific judgments of God that fell mainly on America between about the 1970s and when he wrote the book in the first decade of this century. And from what I can remember, there are about 40 in all. Unfortunately, I can't find the book, and I may, I may have given it away or somebody borrowed it. I can't find it. But in it, he listed numerous disastrous events that befell the West when politicians made significant speeches towards dividing up Israel's land, either on the day of the speech or within a couple of days, and often within the constituency of the politician who made the speech. That gets pretty close to home, doesn't it? Some of the events, the insurance companies would even call acts of God. And I'm talking about events such as the Twin Towers on the 11th of September, 2001, the financial crash of 2008, and Hurricane Katrina, where people in an area 10 times as big as Gaza were displaced, and which started to develop in the Caribbean Sea the day after the Jews were evicted from Gaza by their own government under American pressure. There was a severe storm in our country, in the Midlands, with much damage and flooding the day after Tony Blair made a similar speech as Britain's envoy to the Middle East. And I can remember that one particularly, because Carol and myself, with her mother, were on our way to, on holiday to Ireland and had to walk across the tarmac to the aeroplane at Birmingham Airport in torrential rain on that day. Some of you might remember it too, as the city of Worcester was cut off completely by flood water. So taking the multitude of these 40 plus or so events, and there's probably been a lot more since, it becomes mathematically impossible that it's just a coincidence. I'll put the title of that book up on the screen for anybody who's interested at the end. And today as this nation seeks to defend itself from those who seek to destroy them, we see the old anti-Semitism that never went away rising again all over the world, don't we? Well, we're now into that second generation of Israel. Need I, mention, need I mention for the third time? And I'll make just one or two more observations. One, one based upon what we've witnessed in this church. Two weeks before October the 7th, when Israel was invaded, we were praying for Armenian Christians, weren't we? 
as the Azerbaijanis forced them out of their own land. And some of them committed the same atrocities that we've witnessed got happen in Israel by Hamas. And we all prayed for them, didn't we? We remember the emails. Who supplied the Azerbaijanis with 70% of their weapons? It was Israel. And the reason that they both was that they both have a common enemy in Iran. And selling weapons is a lucrative business. So the question might be, is Israel held just as accountable by the Lord as any other nation for its misdeeds? Some of you might remember the Stephen Lewis murder where a group of thugs set upon a young black boy and stabbed him to death. Only one actually did the deed, but all are held accountable in law. And if that had been a gun instead of a knife in that murder, then the one who supplied it would have been accountable too. Do you think that the Lord holds a less, to a lesser degree of justice than we do in our law? He's both the judge of his own people as well as the world. And as the outworking of Adam's sin has demonstrated in recent history before our very eyes, in man's inhumanity to man, we see that the Lord is vindicated in all of his judgments, both on the nations as well as on individuals. But he's a God of love as well, isn't he? As well as a God of righteousness and justice. The reason he sent his only begotten son to bear our sins on the cross. Because there was nothing any of us could do by our own, our own efforts to achieve reconciliation with our maker. And there's another thing that crossed my mind as well. Was the Apostle Paul the type or pattern of the second generation of those Israelites who were back in the land? If you go to Israel today as a Christian, you'll be at best tolerated. You won't be allowed to openly preach the gospel and you may be persecuted. Well, Paul persecuted the Lord's people at Saul of Tarsus, didn't he? And there were consequences for that in his life. Did the Lord reject him? No, he didn't, did he? He in his grace revealed himself to him there on the Damascus Road. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And one day, perhaps sooner than we might think, the Lord is going to reveal himself to his people Israel, a people that he himself has declared that they are a holy nation, set aside by him to accomplish his purposes here on this earth. They just haven't got there yet as far as holiness is concerned, both as a nation and individually too. But they will one day. And in case you're thinking bad thoughts about Israel right now, neither of we who trusted Christ as our saviour got there either. But we will one day too as well. Praise the Lord that our sanctification, just like theirs as a nation, doesn't depend upon our efforts, but on the Lord's faithfulness to what he's declared. As Zechariah the prophet declared in Zechariah 12 verse 10, and I will pour out on the, nation, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they pierced, and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Did Paul mourn for, the, for his persecution of the Lord's people after he looked upon him on the D Damascus road? 
Well, we know he did, don't we? And so will that generation of Israel. Maybe this one. Do the same. We need, as always, to be ready to meet the Lord. We need to keep the faith. We need to spread the good news of the gospel. His return for the church is imminent. It can happen at any moment. And we need to have a proper understanding of current events and where they fit into what has been clearly prophesied in the word and what has been fulfilled. We rely for our faith in the Bible on its internal evidence, what it declared would happen, which has come true, and also on external evidence, the changed lives of those who've come to believe its promises, being a part of that external evidence, as well as all these events that have been going on around us in our lifetime. But here in the fulfilment of this prophecy relating to the birth of Israel as a nation, we've got a piece of evidence that's both internal and external. The dates involved are set in history. Math mathematical evidence is there linking Genesis, Leviticus, Jeremiah and Ezekiel right down to the present day. But what about us, the church? Because as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, for this we say to you by the word of God, word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Jesus is coming back for his church. Are we ready? I don't know about you, but I can see the day approaching. And if you've been coming along here week in, week out, year in, year out, or if you're just visiting and you've not yet acknowledged to God that you're a sinner who falls short of his standard, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it except put your trust in his son, Jesus Christ, and what he did for you there on the cross, where he bore all your sins. And perhaps now would be a good time to do it. Because as Paul told the Corinthian church, now is the accepted time. Tomorrow isn't guaranteed and might be just too late. And if you're already a believer and your walk with the Lord isn't what it should be, Perhaps you've even stopped praying together with faith. Perhaps you're too taken up with the, even, the, even the legitimate things of this world to give your saviour much of a second thought. Perhaps in your mind you've been supporting the wrong side in this current war, not understanding what's going on in Israel and what the Lord meant when he said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. Then you might want to think again. Because in the coming days and months, you might be asked to make very real choices around this very issue. As I watched the news last night, reporting on the so-called peace march in London, a Christian lady came on, and she said that she joined the march because she wanted peace. And we fully understand that sentiment, don't we? But we might ask her if the peace that she wants is the peace of Islam and Sharia law in her neighbourhood 
and the Islamic call to prayer bellowing out five times a day from that brand spanking new mosque just up the road in Cowbridge because that's the peace that those who organise this protest are pushing towards. Not the peace of God that passes all understanding as we talked about last time. As Paul said in his letter to Timothy, in the last days many will be deceived, even the elect. Perhaps we can pray too for our nation. And so far our government has stood firm in their support of Israel's right to defend itself, along with the leader of the opposition too. We can be very careful too not to be too harsh in our opinions of the current state of Israel and its people. Because as Paul pointed out in Romans 11, Having understood the blindness that in part has come upon Israel, as he said, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet had now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them to all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. But that time may soon come to an end. You remember from last time how God, how the Jews rejected God's offer of the kingdom three times, as we know of, in early Acts, culminating in the stoning of Stephen. In his, in his sermon, Stephen said he saw the Lord standing up at his father's throne. And the father said to him, sit down till I make your enemies your footstool. The act of standing in the word often has to do with judgment. In this case, the judgment of the nation that had finally rejected him. And the Lord sat down. And this mystery age was ushered in that wasn't revealed in either the Old Testament or the Gospels, where God, where God is graciously dealing with the nations through the Gospel of Grace. Well, one of these days is going to stand up again, and this age of grace will be over. And we pray that no one in this church or listening online, if they still need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that they'll do so. You might not agree with all that I've said this afternoon, and that's fine. So be like Bereans in the Book of Acts. Go and check these things out for yourselves. And my apologies for going on a bit longer than normal. And we pray that the Lord will bless you all for what's been shared this afternoon.